This special presentation is presented by Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want began in September of 2020 as a way for people in our community to connect with each other. And now, for over 200 episodes, we have told the story of people within our world with respect, honesty, and most of all, authenticity. We have always been authentically kinky, and now we will be all the time. Premiering in 2024, the next evolution of the podcast begins with the same style you have come to know and love as we become authentically kinky. This is Skylar West, producer and star of The Assignment on gemweathers.com, and I am proud to be the one to introduce you to Authentically Kinky, presented by Dating Kinky 2024. Welcome in. We've saved a space for you. And welcome to a special preview edition of Authentically Kinky, the program formerly known as What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. And we are presented by Dating Kinky. I'm your host, John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit. And if this is the first time you're joining our show, well, you kind of caught us while we were remodeling. When we have our official premiere on February 13th, we will do so with the same great stories with a whole new sound. But we've been gathering some great interviews leading up to that show that, quite frankly, we didn't want you to have to wait for. The first of these special preview editions of the show is with the national spokesperson for the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom, Susan Wright. The NCSF is a coalition of over 140 groups, clubs, and businesses, including mental health practices and law firms. The foundation of the NCSF is a charitable foundation that provides education and conducts research. The NCSF is committed to creating a political, legal, and social environment in the U.S. that advances equal rights for consenting adults who engage in alternative sexual and relationship expressions. The NCSF aims to advance the rights of and advocate for consenting adults in the BDSM leather fetish, swing, and polyamory communities. They pursue their vision through direct services, education, advocacy, and outreach in conjunction with their partners to directly benefit these communities. Hi, I'm Susan Wright, and I'm Authentically Kinky. And we welcome Susan Wright to the show. And as always, we start with the first five, five questions about first with Susan Wright. Susan, when was the first time that your heart said, I need to step up and advocate for people? I think the first time that that happened was when uh, I was outed and I was discriminated against and sexually harassed because I was outed. I was in New York, 1991, and I started exploring the kink community with some friends of mine and almost immediately became kinky and non-monogamous, I have to say. Um, and But I was outed to um, an independent book publisher and I was trying to get him to publish my first book. And he ended up taking me out to dinner and he told me that, well, since you're dating this couple, that means you can date me. And I was, I was really taken aback, you know, and I said, I thought we were here to talk about my book. And he was just like, oh, I would have taken you to lunch if I wanted to talk about your book. And I was like, well, I'm not interested in dating you. And I ended up just getting up and walking out. And that made me so angry that somebody would have that kind of power over me. So at that point, I stopped being closeted. I started using my name, Susan Wright, everywhere. And I just swore I was not going to be closeted anymore. I was not going to be caught off guard anymore. And of course, this is long before the Me Too movement. Uh, so I didn't really have the words to explain how offended I was by this sort of casting couch behavior 
that I'd been subjected to. And after that, I just really, I started working on activist projects in uh, New York. I worked on the Leather Pride Night, which raised money for the Center and for the Heritage of Pride Parade and for the New York City Anti-Violence Project. And from there, I just kept doing more and more activist projects. What was the genesis or the first time that you thought National Coalition for Sexual Freedom? Well, I was working on a project for the um, National Organization for Women now, and they had this anti-kink policy. It was it, it basically was wrapped up in their anti-pornography policy, and it said that SM, which it was called at the time, uh, is violence against women. And because they had this policy, uh, you would see things happening at like the Michigan Women's Festival where women were attacking kink women. Women who were wearing leather jackets would have to band together and walk through the woods together to keep from from being attacked. And uh, so I was doing a project for now, and uh, I was trying to get them to rescind this policy. And so I traveled around the country, going to the different regional conferences for now, and talking to people and letting them know that this policy was actually causing harm, and that they really needed to create a, a policy that embraced the sexual expression of of women rather than be pater paternalistic like that. And as I was traveling around the country, I kept on getting women coming up and saying, oh, I was fired from my job for being kinky, or it was discovered that I was kinky and my uh, CPS came and took my kids away, or I was getting a divorce and my ex was using it against me in child custody. And I thought then, wow, we really need an advocacy group, like a national advocacy group. And because I was going around everywhere, I was really, you know, back in 95, 96, like kind of getting to know all the different groups around the country. We weren't as networked together as we are now. So I reached out to five different groups and I said, we really need this. And they didn't want to do it themselves. They were too busy educating and running socials and they had enough to fight. So I said, well, I'll just start this as a coalition of groups and we will work on media advocacy. We'll fight for our rights to hold our events. And we'll work on some of the systemic discrimination that's out there. And so that's it. We The first five groups came together. And now we have uh, over 160 coalition partners and supporting members that are groups or businesses or professionals. What was the first time where the word consent came into your life? Wow, that's a really good question. It came into my life with safe, sane, and consensual. It really was the kink community that introduced the concept of consent to me. And I loved it. I was attending munches uh, every week. We would have the, the Monday night munch. And safe, sane, and consensual was talked about a lot back then because it differentiated us from um, people who were violent. You know, and that's that was the rep that we had that's why so many people were hiding and using scene names is what we called it at the time. And so we would talk about safe, sane, and consensual and have these kind of big um, debates about what is consent. And so we started talking about the gray areas that, you know, it's not black and white. It's, you know, what if somebody's coerced into consent? What if somebody makes the relationship um, contingent on you doing something? You know, isn't that pressuring you into agreeing to do things? And, and can you consent to things that are really extreme that might really harm you? So we would be having these amazing discussions at the Munch, and I just loved it. I, I It kind of explained everything to me in terms of self-empowerment, that you can control what happens to your own body. And it was really quite the revelation for me. It may be difficult to remember the first time, and if you can't remember the first time, a recent time would be fine, that you received a note from someone that said, Susan, you have absolutely changed my life. Oh, I definitely can't remember the first time, but I do, I do get notes from people. And what's really wonderful is I just got a note from somebody who had married a friend of mine that I knew back in New York who would attend these New York SM activist meetings and kind of updated me on what happened with him and his life. And so it, it comes back. I, I just, it, it is the gift that keeps on giving when you're an activist, because that's why I do it. I, I do it to make things better for other people and to change the world, really. 
um, it keeps me going, donating so much of my time, volunteering for NCSF and for other projects. And so, yes, every time somebody tells me that I've had an impact on them, I, I've been super appreciative. Do you remember the first issue you advocated for? It was really, it goes back to the whole violence against women. I mean, dealing with um, now, uh, I did some outreach to Amnesty International because at that time it was, we thought there might be a way we could get Amnesty International involved to kind of legitimize kink at, as opposed to, to violence. So I think that this, this idea of consent and um, bodily autonomy has, has, was always the first thing that I was dealing with. But then child custody really came in very hard and fast, especially with the NOW um, project, and especially with the formative years of NCSF. From 1997 to 2008, we kept on receiving a lot of people, a lot of parents contacting us, and it was that's the most traumatic thing. I mean, it involves your kids. So uh, that's why we started our project with the uh, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual with the American Psychiatric Association. And in 2008, we, we had started this project and we put it out to the community. We had 124 parents come to us for help. So that was quite shocking. Whereas when you look at it now, since we've changed the DSM, since we've depathologized BDSM, um, since family courts have been educated, we had seven kinky parents come to us for help. So there is quite a big difference. And being able to see that, being able to see the change is what makes this all so worthwhile. As you can tell from just the first five, Susan Wright has quite the story to tell. And when we come back on Authentically Kinky, we'll talk consent and so much more with Susan Wright of the NCSF on Authentically Kinky, presented by Dating Kinky. Hopeless for love and a unique adventure. He's just a little too vanilla. A mansion sitter to the celebs lands a fresh gig for a mysterious client. Where is it? It's the freaking boondocks out here. Cut off from the outside world. I can't hear you. You're cutting out. Menaced by a mysterious presence. <laughs> and introduced to a new... Reality. Look at all this cool bondage stuff. The assignment. Watch this series now at gemweathers.com. Pinksters.com is a new social media where you can post legal content and engage in free speech without algorithms and censorships. You don't get shadow banned, period. Sell your legal content without fear and share your social media updates, all in the same place. Try out the all-new social media site, pinksters.com, P-I-N-X-S-T-E-R-S.com. Welcome back to the program. I am John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, and I am proud to be joined by Susan Wright from the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. And if there's one word that I always, always associate with your organization, it is consent. As a matter of fact, on the sign-off of this show, I constantly say, always remember consent. It is a concept that has absolutely changed my life in that it has allowed me to understand people in a totally different way in that I never was one that was, let me say, worried about violating consent because I've always considered myself a gentleman until I came out as gender fluid and then I considered myself a gen gentle person. But the concept of consent was something I had to learn. Tell me why it's so important that people learn what consent is all about. I think you hit the nail on the head. We're not taught about consent uh, as a society, especially American society. We are taught to respect authority and do what people tell you to do. And 
Um, it's all wrapped up into um, not being able to make decisions for your own self, your own body. And so I think that the when you see people come into the community and they're super excited and they almost go into that whole frenzy aspect, a lot of it is them being able to acknowledge their desires. But I think a lot of it also is realizing that they are empowered to be able to do these things. A lot of us have these fantasies and some of our fantasies kind of cross these lines of consent or non-consensual. But when we're acting them out, when we're actually engaged in this, the consent is what brings the power to it. And it's what brings the trust. You have to really trust the person that you're doing this with in order to be able to have that clear communication that you need so that you have the information that you need to be able to make a decision of whether you want to try something or not. And it's it's kind of tough because we're, you know, when we're trying new things, how do we know we really want to do it, right? Uh, that's part of the allure for people who are kinky is they want to try new things. They're curious. Um, they like different sensations. So we have to keep that consent conversation ongoing. And that's different than anything else in the mainstream that we see. Um, we really are the only community that's teaching adults about consent in such nuance. And, you know, the kink community and the non-monogamous community, because it really is consent is, is key to both of those expressions. If you don't have the consent in non-monogamy, you're basically cheating. You know, you're you're going around whatever agreement you have, and and there's nuances with non-monogamy that are not there with kink, and I think vice versa. So being both kinky and non-monogamous, you kind of get to hit the consent on all levels. So I think it's just it's the key to the kingdom, consent. Consent can protect the people who are having the kink performed on them, for lack of a better term, or the bottom. But it also protects the top. And not a lot of people realize how valuable that is. Oh, yeah. Um, NCSF has our Incident Reporting and Response Program. So that's where people come to us for help to get direct help. Often it's referrals to professionals or resources that we can provide. And that's something that we deal with a lot. The top has the responsibility to make sure that they get consent because legally if that's ever called into question it's going to be the top that's going to have to bear the brunt of that and nobody wants to get caught up in criminal proceedings or civil proceedings we're seeing people sue for injuries now or for non-consensual acts and they don't even have to sue in civil court they just have their attorney send a, a letter <laughs> And you're suddenly looking at this letter, a demand letter, and you have to you have to deal with it. So tops have a lot more responsibility than I think they knew that every time you're using erotic force or restraint, you have to make sure that you're doing it consensually. You have to make sure to check in because you don't want, uh, you know, what if somebody gets triggered? What if they're having a flashback or they're frozen and they, they, they're trying to say stop, but they can't? Or what if you violated a limit, even unknowingly? You have to be on top of it, and you have to make sure that what you're doing is consensual before, during, and then check in afterwards with the aftercare and the check-in. You've done a lot of advocacy for women. And to me, and this is strictly my viewpoint, I don't understand why many men can't get the concept of consent. Now, I'm sure there's many women that cannot as well, but it seems to be prevalent that I hear so many friends talk about the fact that the assumption that men can do what they want is still out there in 2024 when it sounds like it should have gone away during the Stone Ages. Well, our laws still kind of reflect that. Maryland just finally last year repealed its marital rape exception mm. that if you were married you you know you couldn't be charged with rape if you had sex with your partner well we all know you can still have non-consensual sex with your spouse so these things were written into law i mean that's what the rule of thumb was all about you couldn't beat your wife with a stick that was larger than your thumb i mean i never knew that's where that came from yeah it's that prevalent that 
you know, domestic violence was sanctioned by law. Mm -hmm. So we're having to work our way out of that where women were chattel, women were, you know, used as bargaining chips for, you know, empires and property. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a long history, thousands of years of history mm -hmm. that we're trying to get past. And so it's difficult sometimes to uh, get past these old fashioned ideas. But I think we're, we're getting there. Um, I think that we have kind of swung a little bit more conservative politically uh, lately because we see that there are attacks on bodily autonomy happening even now. And, but, you know, the pendulum always swings and we're going to go back to more progressive where respect for individual rights will prevail. When you think of the first time that you started doing advocacy for kink and non-monogamy, how much in the dark ages was it? Can you take us back to that time when... You know, we think of going to play parties and everything's easy and we go to hotel takeovers and there's 700 people there all enjoying the same thing. But I'm old enough to remember when you couldn't even think about it or talk about it. Yeah, it was different. I was very fortunate to be in New York City and that had a very vibrant uh, kink community that I was able to, you know, in public clubs that a lot of other states and cities didn't have. And of course, now looking at it, every city has multiple, you know, clubs. You can find it. You can find FetLife very easily. You can find the community very easily to find this education. Back then, it was really, I was introduced by friends. It was, it was kind of like the prohibition knocking on the door and the little <laughs> thing slides open and they like look at you and make sure that you're like, okay, you look, you look cool. Uh, it was definitely very different, very much more underground. And when NCSF started, you know, we had to fight for our rights to be able to hold these events. We went through a string of attacks in 2002 where groups, Concerned Women for America, Americans for Truth About Homosexuality, they were attacking our events and contacting the hotels and telling them, you can't hold this event. We, we want to try to shut it down. And we had to go all hands on deck where we were doing letter writing campaigns to the hotels. We were doing lots of media. They actually introduced a resolution in Missouri that said to try to ban any kind of BDSF. And we got that shelved because it's like, that's crazy. You can't <laughs> ban BDSM or BDSM education is really what they were going for. They were trying to outlaw these groups. So we had to fight for every bit of ground that we've taken. And we also had to fight with some of the advocacy organizations. I remember there was a big um, LGB at the time advocacy group where I was talking to one of their lead people and they were being very friendly. And then when they found out what group I was with, they literally started backing up mm. to kind of get away from me. It was almost a visceral reaction. And I'm standing there going, well, I'm still the same person as you were just talking to a second ago. And, you know, nothing had changed. And yet I was seeing this reaction in this person. And it really, it was happened a lot of times. You know, we would go to these now conferences. And I had a volunteer at one point was down behind the, the table crying because of the way people were reacting to us. And, and I... I was kind of okay with it. I think I've always had kind of a bit of a thick skin when it comes to this, that I didn't take it personally. I was really able to kind of universalize the experience and say, oh, they, they're under a misconception of the stereotypes. But I've seen so many activists do this work and it burns people out because it is very hard to separate your personal feelings from the attacks that you're getting. I wanted to ask you a question because the word education came up. And it's a strange way of looking at it, but did COVID help the world of BDSM that education? That is an interesting question. I think the one thing that we got out of the shutdown during the pandemic was this more reliance on electronic communications, on webinars. This is so much more accessible than having to actually leave your house and go to a group where you're going to have to meet people, I think it kind of opened it up to a lot more people. 
And we were heading that way anyway, kind of Fifty Shades of Grey kind of started that whole process where a lot of people heard about it and the community kind of got an influx. But this technology change has really helped us because I do a lot of webinars now. I can talk to people all around the world at this point. I can talk to you without having to be in the same room. And we just didn't have this technology before. Certainly just chats online. You know, we the, the kink community was an early adopter <laughs> of these chats. And that was transformative for our communities as well. But I think we've taken it to a new level now. Let's talk consent. Let's talk about the fact that consent went from so many dif different definitions to one where you all were able to work through law organizations and other people who helped you to determine what consent is by definition in a legal term. That is our Consent Counts project. NCSF took over the Consent Counts project in 2007. It had been started in 2006 at the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. They, we had a leather caucus and everybody got together and said, well, you know, honestly, the fact that BDSM is criminalized is our biggest issue. And it really is. Um, and, and the way I'm, uh, what I mean by criminalized in the United States, what we have is case law. That means if a criminal case goes to an appellate court and they make a decision, that law is just as binding as like your state assault or your state sexual assault laws. So under case law, there has never been a case in the country uh, that involves BDSM where consent was allowed to be a defense. And that's mm. where we hear this consent is not a defense to assault. Even if there was sexual activity involved, any kind of the force or restraint that was used was considered to be assault. Mm -hmm. So this criminalized us, which, you know, that that's caused a lot of problems for us because that's what brings the stigma. That's what still keeps people kind of closeted. Uh, and, you know, we used to have something called the alleged domestic violence call where somebody would overhear you having a scene and uh, suddenly the police would be at your door, knock, 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 and they would have to talk to the bottom and find out what was happening. So NCSS spent lots of years going around and educating just local police precincts about what kink was, that so many people were doing it. And that was great. That really kind of almost put a complete halt to the alleged domestic violence call. But then what we had happen was prosecutors stopped prosecuting anything if they, somebody could claim it was kinky. If somebody could point to a person and say they have a FetLife profile, so I was just doing rough sex with them. And even if I choked them to a consciousness or I injured them, it, you know, it's just kink. Mm -hmm. And the prosecutor would be like, I have no way to tell if this is consensual or not consensual. And they would just not file charges. And so we started having more and more issues where predators were coming into the communities as we got bigger and they were attacking people. And so, and people couldn't get any kind of um, justice. And that's one reason why our communities do have to self-regulate so tightly. Groups really have to kind of keep people out if they have reports of consent violations. So we started working with the American Law Institute after we got hold of consent counts. Um, we heard that they were going to be revising the model penal code on sexual assault. And so we started working with them. We started giving them all this information about our communities. We've done surveys. We created a consent statement. It took two years to get everybody on board with it. You know, so we just had tons of data that we gave them. And the lawyers um, and, you know, started working this up. The law professors started really looking at this. How can we create a legal framework for consent? to the use of erotic force or restraint, which is basically impact play, any kind of um, sensation play that, you know, like a medical play that really impacts the body or restraint, basically bondage. And we came up with explicit prior permission. And so the reason it's called permission instead of consent is because it's based in the law. And that's the way that they thought that it, it fit in with, um, with how the law is interpreted now. And so they came up with a specific definition of what you need to do in order to get explicit prior permission. And they put it in the model penal code on sexual assault. It's, sec it's a brand new section, section 21310. 
And that will be, that was approved in 2021, but it's underway being published right now. It should come out this year. And then we'll all start hearing a lot more about it in the mainstream. Just how proud are you of that? Well, it's definitely been something that I've been working towards a long time. Because, you know, as you said earlier, consent and sexual assault and assault were really kind of the the the, the things I kept hearing about that needed to be addressed. And so having this now, having it based so firmly in our community's mottos of safe, sane, and consensual and risk-aware consensual kink, it is really gratifying to be able to translate that into a legal format. I have gone to therapy for many, many years. And to find a therapist that understands kink and its role in my life has been a journey. But I had a therapist in Cleveland who not only accepted it, she encouraged it, which was amazing. I went to see a, a doctor the other day because I was getting my meds looked at. And at the end of the entire appointment, she looked at me and she said, I just want to thank you for living an authentic life and being able to educate so many people in what you're all about, because it will help them know they're not alone. BDSM used to be an illness, and it's not anymore. Please tell me the story of how that came to be. Well, that's when we depathologized BDSM. And that was um, work that was done not just by NCSF, but other sex educators and uh, psychologists and medical professionals who all kept trying to tell the American Psychiatric Association, you know, by, by calling this a paraphilia and, by the way, child sex exploration, pedophilia is a paraphilia. They were bundling us with all this non-consensual, uh, non-adult sexual behavior, and it was having an impact. So we started our project. To, to we heard again that the, the diagnostic manual was being revised. And so we started reaching out to all these different people who were on the paraphilia subwork group. And uh, we weren't having too much luck. And a friend of mine, Barbara Nicky, who is a wonderful photographer in New York, told us about a like a, a workshop at the philosophy center. It, it was about philosophy. And so one of these gentlemen who were on the paraphilia subwork group was there. And so I went with my partner, Kelly. And uh, when they, you know, I heard him talking about the DSM and I thought this, this person seems really reasonable. So afterwards I went up and I said, do you, do you realize that uh, the definition of sexual sadism, sexual masochism, um, all of these these paraphilias that could be consensual are harming people. They're having their kids taken away and they're having, you know, enhanced sentencing and things like that. And he was just like, no, 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 no. He's like, We're, we don't mean those people. And I said, well, you know, and I pointed out the language and he had his DSM with him. So he was able to flip it open and we were able to sit there and I was able to just point right to the, I said, Judges are doing this. They're flipping it open. They're looking right here and they're saying, see, it says if you have one paraphilia, that means you probably have another. So they're equating it with pedophilia. And so they're taking people's kids away. And he was shocked and it opened that door. So we spent uh, the next year, again, giving them all of our information, answering their questions, giving them the survey. Um, we had a violence and discrimination survey that uh, showed that how professionals were discriminating against people, much less just, you know, you're, you're losing your job. But like when you go to try to get professional help, therapists, doctors, lawyers were discriminating against people and that had an impact. And so they rewrote that whole section and they, they separated the paraphilias, which is just an unusual sexual interest from the paraphilic disorders, which mm -hmm. the paraphilic disorders are done with people who are not consenting and people who are, you know, underage or people who are, you know, harming themselves, like doing the self-harm and um, kind of compulsively. And they separated that from the people who are kinky <laughs> because we don't fall into that. Uh, and so that, that had the dual 
part of like kind of making it clear. They even say specifically in the DSM-5, people who are in community networks are mentally healthy on the whole. So that's, they even kind of call out the BDSM communities and say, you know, if you're an active part of this, you're not the people that we're talking about. And it also kind of called out, if you're doing this with people who are not consenting, you may have a psychiatric problem. So that the people who were just like, oh, you know, trying to smoosh it all together and say, well, I, I'm kinky, even though they were doing these things with people who hadn't consented. It's like we were able to very clearly point to this and say, no, there is a difference. Somebody outside of us, an organization outside of us has recognized that consensual BDSM is one thing, non-consensual acts are completely different. Has there ever been a study as to whether kink is an orientation into itself? You know, that's an interesting question. There's been all kinds of different papers about it. There's uh, one paper that found that you should call it serious leisure, which I thought was really interesting. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that people have put forward, for some people, it seems like it's a sexual orientation. It doesn't matter what the gender of the person is. It's more about the cues that they give off in terms of power exchange and role play, right? And then for other people, and, and you tend to find those people more in our communities. They more make the communities their social life, right? They're looking for um, a partner who really fits the, what their expression is. And then you have millions of people out there who are just doing this as a little bit of fun as part of their sex life. And they wouldn't consider it to be their sexual orientation. Um, but there are literally millions of people. We finally got a prevalence survey, Debbie Herbenick. And uh, it's called Sexual Diversity in America, and it was done in 2017. And it found up to 30% of the respondents said that they liked to spank, at least occasionally, each other during sex. 22% liked to do a little role play, whether that was French made or <laughs> something a little more extreme. Um, and 20% enjoyed some kind of bondage. So we're talking about millions of people like to do that you could say millions of people are kinky in some way or another <laughs> the reason i mentioned orientation susan is that when i was three years old i would watch batman how many times have you heard this story because i think a lot of us have it and the dynamic between batman and catwoman or Batgirl getting tied up were thoughts that were in my brain at a very early age. So that when puberty came around, there was this tap on the shoulder, like, that's what turns you on. And I didn't even know what an orgasm was the first time it happened to me, but I do know that I was watching Batgirl. And so... I have said that I have never had a choice in this matter because that's the way my mind has always gone. I've tried vanilla relationships. I tried a vanilla marriage. It didn't work because my joy always goes back to the submissive side of giving control over to somebody else. Right. Yeah, I, I, I do hear that a lot. There's a lot of people who fight it um, very young, you know, they're tying their Barbie dolls together or, um, you know, their babysitter's feet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, and then we have, you know, for me, I didn't run the community until I was 28. Hmm. And for me, it, it I, I kind of had a little bit of that recognition as well. Ah, I've been doing this, you know, giving up control without actually discussing it with the people I'm giving up control to, right? Uh, and, oh, this is how I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to take control of this so that I make sure I get it. I'm getting it the way I want to. I have to be honest about how I feel. Uh, I think I've really come to feel like kink is as individual as a fingerprint. It's mm -hmm. just each person is completely unique. And that's what's so amazing about kink is that how it is expressed and how you grow. I mean, I've been doing this now over 30 years, right? It has grown and changed for me. 
Um, and, and it's that journey that we're all on. I think it's very important. And, and it's those are the people that we really find a lot in the community who are willing to dedicate so much time, like you are, to making sure that the education is happening and to making friends in the community and 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 concern about the health of the communities because we see how much it's giving back to so many people. But a lot of other people, they'll come in and they'll take like two workshops and then you never see them again because they've gotten <laughs> what they needed <laughs> and they're just moving on. <laughs> When we come back on Authentically Kinky, presented by Dane and Kinky, we will visit with Susan Wright and find out what you can do to help the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom with their message and what you can do to help your own community when we come back. Are you curious about kink but don't know where to begin? <laughs> or maybe you have a friend who, while they appreciate your interest in BDSM, they don't really understand what it's all about. You should check out Kink for the Curious. It's a fun little activity book with color pages and word finds, lots of silly puns, <laughs> uh, but lots of solid BDSM and kink information written by somebody who's been in the business for almost 30 years. Kink for the Curious a BDSM activity book for beginners, written by Princess Natasha Strange, and that's me, <laughs> is available on Amazon. Go get it now. Hi, Dawn. Hi, Dan. Recently, we put together a brand new book called Hearts and Collars, reflecting 20 years in a power exchange relationship. It's 350 pages of what we've been living for the past 20 years. Indeed, and it's got chapters like communication, power exchange and spirituality, how to be a leader, high protocol, becoming a follower, rituals, the new porch time, victim, survivor, and thriver, power exchange and polyamory, submissive versus wife, the practical contract guide, relationship short shorthand, as well as other tools and experiences we've had over the years. Check it out at eroticawakening.com slash hearts and collars. Bye, Dan. Bye, Dawn. Creptaculous boundaries are not your fault. The more severe the dysfunction you experienced growing up, the more difficult boundaries are for you. David W. Earle. Or as Ms. Titania said, nobody ever warns you that when you come from dysfunction, a healthy mind can feel unsafe. We spend our lives being controlled by others, so we learn to control others. Or we allow others to control us in exchange for love. Learn more about Take No Shit. Build better relationships through discovering, creating, and maintaining healthy boundaries in three sometimes five simple steps at my.curiouser.life. And welcome back to the program. I am John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, joined by Susan Wright of the NCSF. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the new definition of explicit and help me out with the entire term there. It's explicit prior permission, EPP. EPP. You're down with EPP. Yes. Yes, down with EPP. I've actually got a little graphic that says you down with EPP. That's awesome. <laughs> so this is going to evolve the idea of consent, it seems like. Yeah, it definitely does because we, we've never had a legal framework. And, and bear in mind, there's a lot of states that don't even have a definition of consent for general sex. Um, but, uh, like for example, Maryland is going to probably put that on, uh, they're going to try to get that past a definition of consent in that state. But this is definition of consent, kind of 301 for use of force or restraint. And so, uh, for example, just quickly to, to, to do that, you have to, there's certain criteria that you have to, to meet. So you have to talk before you do it either, you know, verbally, by sign language, or in writing, and you have to agree to exactly what you're going to do, the specific acts that are okay. Spanking, a little hair pulling, a little humiliation is okay. 
you know, you don't have to map out the scene, but you have to agree to what specific acts you're going to do before you start doing them. You can't start spanking somebody and then renegotiate in the middle of the scene. Uh, because once somebody's been stimulated, you can coerce them into doing something they might not be in their right mind. They might be in subspace. So we believe you have to, and now legally, you have to negotiate everything beforehand. And that includes if you're going to be having some kind of sex or sexual contact. So if you're going to be doing bondage, you also have to talk about, well, where is it okay to touch or not touch? What kind of sexual stuff are we going to do? And you also have to talk about how intense it's going to be. It's not enough to just say, um, slapping my face is okay. There's a difference between really slapping somebody hard and just tapping somebody in the face. There's a difference between leaving marks or not leaving marks. So you have to talk about exactly what you're going to do beforehand, what's okay, the intensity of it. And um, to do that, of course, you have to understand the risks involved, right? You can't just say, uh, I'm going to do this single tail without telling somebody, oh, there's a chance it might break the skin, right? That's a pretty big piece of information that needs to be given. So people need to be informed about the risks before they agreed. And then you also have to have a way to stop at any time. And this includes, even if you're going to do uh, some kind of role play where you're going to be resisting you know, you, you should talk about that. Hey, we're going to do a kidnap scene. I'm going to say, no, no, stop, get away. But my safe word is pineapple. And what a lot of people don't realize is you also have to do that for consensual non-consent. You can go into this with the idea of, I'm not going to withdraw consent. I may not like what's happening. I may tell you all, cuss you out and tell you, go to wherever. But um, I'm going to try to have this cathartic scene or whatever scene that I'm going to have. But you do need to have that kind of, um, ejection seat <laughs> in case it goes wrong, right? You know, uh, you have to have something like, like a safe word so that if something goes wrong, if you have an asthma attack, right? If you suddenly start choking, if you get triggered, you know, it can be so much easier to just say a safe word than to say no or stop, which is one reason why safe words are so, so useful. I mean, as you know, when you get into deep subspace, sometimes you can't say no, but you can choke out like, you know, pomegranate. <laughs> <laughs> in my Don't case, Palomino. 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 There you go. <laughs> the only um, safe word to ever come from a Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> Palomino. I love that. Um, so that's really what what is involved with explicit prior permission. And then the rest is just kind of common sense. You can't do it with somebody who's intoxicated enough where like they can't drive. They can't consent, right? If they're having a mental health crisis, well, it doesn't matter if you negotiate this scene for three weeks. If you get there and the person is in some kind of mental health issue that they're having, they can't consent at that moment. Um, you can't do it with children. Really, BDSM is for 18 and over because it is kind of a higher level of consent. It's the, the, the coercive factor, the intensity factor. You really need to be doing this with adults. And that's really what explicit prior permission is. You brought up an interesting point there about mental health. There is a very large sector of our community that's neurodivergent. And I'm not going to say it changes the rules, but it does create more understanding that needs to happen because there's sometimes a different way of thinking. Or communicating. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that comes with making sure that you're getting to know the individual. How do they communicate? Sometimes people communicate better uh, in writing. Sometimes you want to have the conversation and then you want to follow it up with, with in writing. Um, and I think that's one reason that some people are really drawn to the kink community because we are so thorough about that. NCSF actually has a sample negotiation sheet that kind of hits the high points of what you need to to negotiate and make sure that you've covered. Uh, so definitely check that out because that can be super helpful because sometimes you're like really into somebody and you sit down and it's like, all of it's gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm supposed to ask about or talk about. And you're just kind of sitting there going, yeah, yeah, anything's fine. No, you don't want to go into that like this. That's why it can be helpful to look at something like a negotiation sheet, where it, which is different than a one of those really long things that says what you like or what you don't like what you might be interested in trying. No, this is for each person that you're looking at 
you know, of thinking I might want to do a scene with this person. Um, we really do believe it has to be case by case. It has to be because, you know, I'd agree to something different with you than I would with somebody else. So that's how we have to negotiate. The name of the organization is National Coalition of Sexual Freedom. But if you've listened to this show or my listeners have listened to the show and they hear me almost preach, and it's awful to say that, but almost preach that kink is not always about sex. And that is such a part of the stigma, I think, that so many people in the outside world equate kink with sex when it's so much more. Yeah, it's definitely not traditional sex. That's for sure. It's not like genital focused, um, penetrative focused sex. So when most people think of sex, that's what they think of. And the reason we called it sexual freedom is because we were thinking in terms of erotic. It mm -hmm. really is uh, about, you know, creating uh, something with other people, you know, that intimate environment. And, you know, we actually did just do a survey in 2020 and we asked people, what is it that you like to do? And, uh, you know, bondage was up there at like 94% and spanking was up there at 90%. Kissing was at like 98%. Um, some 90% of the people said they like to do something sexual, some kind of mm -hmm. sexual contact or with their BDSM. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of people that have components of what you would normally call sex uh, as part of their kink. And, but there is also certainly people that are doing it, like we talked about cathartic reasons. There, You can mm -hmm. have a completely cathartic scene that has absolutely nothing to do with touching the genitals or the breasts or any kind of penetration or erotic even um, intensity. For the vast majority out there, especially people not in the scene, in the communities, you know, they mix their sex and their kink together <laughs> or they are they do they do some sort of kink and then it's followed by sex um so yeah that's how we got to national coalition for sexual freedom you know we had we had at one point wanted to um you know call it specifically something kinky and at that point in the really when we were forming it non-monogamy was something we were also thinking about mm -hmm. And uh, so we didn't want to just call it a kink name because non-monogamy has been entwined with the kink community. And now, of course, there's a completely vanilla non-monogamy <laughs> communities out there that have nothing to do with the kink community. But uh, we were certainly doing it a lot. From the time I came in, I saw it was it was there was a lot of non-monogamy going on. Resources. You all have a ton of them, most of them at ncsfreedom.org. But tell us some of the important resources that are available for people, whether it's running a space, having a conference, or just being an individual. Yeah, definitely check out our Consent Counts uh, program. It's got a whole page of resources for individuals um, looking to figure out consent, we have brochures. We also have resources for groups and events, things like a sample consent policy and procedures so that you don't have to invent the reinvent the wheel. I mean, we've, we've created this over many years with input from our groups and working with groups specifically. And, you know, we've discovered there are certain things that groups should deal with in terms of consent violation reports. And certain things they should empower their members to deal with among each other, right? Um, but groups do have to be really concerned with any kind of report that rises to the level of a criminal act. And we can walk you through that. We also have our incident reporting and response where we'll have a meeting with you and, you know, hash out what your consent policies and procedures should look like, depending on your consent culture of your group. Some groups have a much tighter consent culture and others don't. We also have legal resources. We have all of the case law on BDSM. So you could check it out yourself and see what these cases involved. Um, we have a new uh, resource, Is Choking Legal, that goes into the risks involved in erotic choking that a lot of people are not aware about. Um, they have been doing recent studies, uh, MRI studies, to find the damage that's been done. So everybody needs to be aware of that before you can consent to that. 
We have our social media. We're, we're getting a lot of consent messages out in our social media in terms of um, consent infographics that you can download or consent signs that you can download and put up in your play space to kind of help people be aware of what the consent culture is in your area. And if, you know, it, it, just come and check it out. Tons of resources, educational. Like we don't tend to do standalone workshops. We like to work with other groups. So if somebody's holding an event, we'll do a workshop for them uh, or we'll do a webinar for their membership. And we can always do a workshop on consent uh, or other things, you know, that that are very important, like, hey, forming a group, you know, <laughs> we do that. You know, the, the, the considerations involved. I do media trainings for people so that we can teach them how to interact with the media. So we've got tons of resources. Well, oh, also I, for DEI, a lot of people now are wondering about like, how do I make sure that my group is diverse and inclusive and equitable? And so we have things like, you know, how to create a DEI um, policy, you know, bystander intervention. When do you intervene and when do you not intervene? It is so amazing how you all have created this wonderful resource for us all. And Susan, it is, as I said, it was a long time coming to where we were wanting to have you on the show. And I am glad that in this age of being authentically kinky, we were finally able to do it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on and letting me share the information. It is ncsfreedom.org. That is the website. And Susan Wright, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. What an educational and informative conversation with Susan. I've been wanting to have her on the show for a long time. And with our new format, we have the opportunity to talk about specific topics, kinks, and fetishes, in addition to the amazing stories of the personalities in our world. Next Tuesday, our previews continue with a familiar guest. Next Tuesday, our previews continue with a familiar guest. We first met Vicki Davika after she went viral with a pandemic video where she had gone into a Canadian grocery store in full rubber and a gas mask. We last visited with her as she was rediscovering herself. And now the evolution continues as we introduce and speak with the goddess, Vicki Davika. That show premieres January 30th. Our premiere episode will be a video treat as I visited the dungeon of Minnesota's own Mistress Riley. She is one of the hosts of the Twin Cities Bondage A Go Go, as well as being one of the top doms in the region. And as you'll see in our premiere, has a beautiful way to drop your host to a place never visited on the show. And in the upcoming weeks, fetish legend Randy Moore, British content creators Kitty Quinzel and Zoe Ziptai, South African Dom Mistress Baton, sex worker advocate and podcast host Jesse Sage, podcaster and model Madeline Ray, JJ from The Sexy Show Podcast, Atlanta Mistress Ultraviolet, and later this year, we will be on site with legends from the days of Harmony Concepts for a special retrospective direct from Los Angeles. I am so excited to welcome you into this journey, as well as introduce you to our new partners, including Kinkstermerch.com, The Adventures of Ultra Girl, our marketing people at Medusa Media Management, and coming soon, an official catsuit in a brand you know a lot about. Plus, we will welcome a new announcer and bring you original music from kinky artists who we are proud to bring to you. We have always been authentically kinky, and we are proud to be exactly that from this day on. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, and I am authentically kinky. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time, and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. You can find us on social media at our new handles. On X and FetLife, we are Off Kinky Pod, 
A-U-T-H-K-I-N-K-Y-P-O-D. And on Instagram and YouTube, we are Authentically Kinky Podcast. And soon, you'll be able to join us for the show and a lot more at AuthenticallyKinky.com. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free.